Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. I'm in the studio to record a different kind of podcast. Wisconsin Lutheran College, like all universities, have suspended face-to-face education due to the spread of the coronavirus. Online education is the norm for a while. And so Wade and I have decided to team up and record some audio for our students in lieu of classroom lectures. It's not ideal, but we think our discussions will be better than hastily made videos in which students have to look at our ugly mugs as we drone on without the benefit of a live audience. If you're not a student and are listening, we hope that this will still be beneficial to you as well. And even though it's not an exact classroom experience with visuals and discussion, we hope that these episodes will give you an insight into the type of fun we can have here at WLC. So on our feed on the website, we're calling this COVID-19 online learning. And uh, each one uh, for our class will have its own class name and its own class picture. And so if you're a student, you can subscribe to that. I'll send you links to those that these are the really the classroom lectures since we can't meet face to face. If you're already a subscriber to our podcast, please don't unsubscribe, even though we're blasting you with all of this, uh, all of this information, you can simply ignore it or adjust your how you subscribe to us. Uh, we 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 do need subscribers just because that's how the podcast world works. So uh, we do apologize for blasting you with all this stuff. But let's be honest; probably most of you have nothing to do for the next two weeks, so you might as well just listen to us anyway, right? <laughs> all right. But today, Wade is not here. Um, this is for uh, Philosophy Two Hundred Two Apologetics. And uh, Dr. Kerry Keene, our physicist here on campus, has graciously um, agreed to come on, risk his life, really, risk Hmm. his life, really, to come out here and uh, help me through what we call the teleological arguments for the existence of God. And teleological arguments have to do with design and purpose. And so they do kind of uh, sort of go into the scientific world. And so what I do in this period for our, for my students is just kind of go through some definitions, like what does naturalism mean and stuff like that. And I thought it would be fun um, to have a, a kind of a, a give and take here and hear somebody else's perspective and have more of a discussion sort of um, atmosphere rather than just me kind of reading off a piece of page, uh, a piece of paper or something like that. So thank you, Carrie, for joining me today. Appreciate it. And I am certainly, uh, willing to reciprocate. Like if you need something on like, you know, fluid water physics, something, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to come in and give you my two cents about that. <laughs> it's funny. I'm putting together for my students co-videos. Oh, yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> there is a little bit of a sense of humor in, even in the darkness here. Yes. I mean, I can come in and tell you, like, if you're talking about like water, I can tell them about the Red Sea or something like well, that. Yeah. How did it, how did it part or something? Yeah, that's right. Like, how fast could they go? <laughs> like that the science between of, um, of Moses's staff and how it reacts to the water. Yeah. Something like yep. that. So sounds good. We'll start with this naturalism. And I would kind of maybe define naturalism from a philosophical religious point of view as the worldview that thinks that there's only physical matter. So no soul, no angels, no spirit, no God. Naturalism kind of seems to say, this is what it is, the natural world. How would you describe naturalism from a scientific point of view? Yeah, I guess I would I would say that's a fair that's a fair description of what most people would mean by naturalism. I guess there'd be nuances and I see on this this sheet of paper of definitions you have you have various kind of um 
you know, materialism and metaphysical naturalism and so on. So those get into kind of the weeds of what, how you approach naturalism. But I think as a basic starting point, um, the, the world, uh, kind of what we see, what is accessible to what modern scientists would call science, um, if that's all there is, then that would be a naturalistic worldview. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Yeah, so what we're really talking about is metaphysical naturalism, which is the conclusion that this is all there is. But that's different than methodological naturalism. Think of just the methods of maybe how uh, scientists work, that only natural causes or explanations can be used. So they're not necessarily saying, if, we, if we're working with this definition, that there aren't supernatural, there there's no God, no soul. We're just saying when we do science, we are only allowed to use natural causes as explanations. And, and, and generally, I kind of like that. Like if I'm trying to figure out gravity and I have a feather and a, a rock and I, I drop them from a, a two-story building and I see that the feather doesn't go as fast as the rock and I go, well, it must be God's angels because this, <laughs> you know, for some reason. So uh, maybe you can flesh that out a little bit more, the difference between methodological naturalism and metaphysical naturalism. Yeah, I love the fact that you used gravity as an example because that's a particularly problematic one, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I love that you brought that up. So, I mean, if you, I think, maybe I'll start this way. With methodological naturalism, the idea is that well, maybe there's a God, maybe there are angels, maybe there are souls, maybe there are all kinds of things, but as a scientist, I'm strictly going to confine my attention to what I, what I would loosely define as natural phenomena. So there may be all these other things, but as a method, as a, as a technique in the laboratory, when I'm, in, when I'm teaching physics classes, I'm only going to talk about things that are tangible, I suppose, mm-hmm. things that I can measure in the laboratory. It's almost like, I like to use the example of when you know, Picasso had his blue period or something. He, he, he could have painted with every color he wanted to, but he said, I'm going to discipline myself and paint only with blue hues, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, and you can make a lot of um, headway by setting up some criteria and sticking strictly to that criteria. But I think you recognize you're losing something mm-hmm. when you confine yourself uh, to one particular, um, one particular palette, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the case with gravity, you might say, well, um, when an apple falls, uh, I'm going to describe this strictly in terms of natural causes and not refer to, you know, angels batting their wings and pushing this apple downward toward the earth. But interestingly, that, that very example of gravity, when Newton came up with his law of gravity, so back in 1687, when he wrote, he wrote his, what's, what's now called the Principia or Principia, depending on how you want to say it, Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, if you like the long title, um, he had the idea that gravity is um, pulling uh, between every pair of objects. So the earth is pulling on the moon, the moon is pulling on the earth, the earth is pulling on apples, and so on. Um, At the time when he came up with this universal law of gravity, his opponents actually accused him of bringing the occult back into science. Mm -hmm. So they actually criticized him as saying, what, there's this magical invisible force pulling apples down to the earth and the moon toward the earth. Uh, they, they preferred a more materialistic perspective, and they thought he was actually swerving into the realm of mysticism or theology or the occult, the hidden. Uh, so 
that just I guess the reason I bring that up is because it just goes to show that if if even if we say we're only going to use natural explanations, you really have to define what you mean by natural. Do you mean strictly things you can touch with your hands? Uh, because if that's the case, I can't touch gravity with my hands, so I should avert any kind of explanation that uses gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is this is a major a major issue. I think that if you're going to say you can only use natural explanations, well, what if I say angels are natural? They're part of nature. Mm-hmm. God made nature angels, and so they're natural, and so I can use those. Well, a lot of scientists would say, well, no, you can't do that because that's not what I mean by natural. So I think we need to be very careful what we mean by natural. And in effect, I think in modern, in contemporary or modern science, a lot of um, what it comes down to is scientists basically say, well, you can't use any words that are referring to things in the Bible, like God or spirits or souls or angels or anything like that. But even then you're you're in trouble because the Bible talks about a lot of different things. So... So I guess that's a that's a difficulty. So whenever whenever you set up these definitions as an attempt to clarify what you're trying to do in science, I think you need to be clear about the definitions. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's very helpful. I think to a lot of listeners because especially as a non-scientist or a non-philosopher, which is the vast majority of all of us out there, um, you know, we we are in that world. We think we know, but we're not professionals in that. Haven't thought this through. That it's just nice to e- easily have these kind of little definitions that I have written out right. here and yeah. go, well, that's just what it is. But yeah. and these they're, are they're only, helpful. They're yeah. very helpful, especially because it can clarify your thinking. What do we mean? What do we mean when we talk about naturalism? Well, methodological naturalism. We're gonna we're going to act in a way that uh, that appeals only to tangible things, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, things that we can put our hands on. But even then, you're running into some difficulties. Or even things that I I see. Right? There's plenty of things right. that we don't see. Right? So this is a this is a broad discussion uh, that we'll, we'll get into, I'm sure, uh, the idea that a scientist looks at the data, comes up with theory that matches the data, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're absolutely certain, like they could they could touch that. As you no. said, mm-hmm. it's not like I can bottle up gravity and say, here it is, or no. even life. Or, yeah. yeah, or, I mean, there, there are countless examples like this in science, like energy, like show me an energy, right. you know, you, you can't show me an, things, things we say there's kinetic energy, potential energy, and so on, but... Energy is an abstract concept. Yeah. You know, there's a reason it wasn't. You know, it wasn't until the 1800s that people started talking about energy. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a f- probably a good rule that I am in the laboratory and I am going to go to natural causes as explanations for theories that fit the data. I put mm-hmm. an extra word in there. However, I shouldn't be so tied to say. Um, to eliminate other things. I mean, yeah. is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah, I mean, I think there's this notion that if, if you get some Christian or, you know, whatever, some other religious person in the laboratory, they're going to roll a ball down a ramp and not even pull out their stopwatch mm-hmm. and just say, well, see, God did it, end yeah. of story. And I mean, that's, that's, a far, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, you have scientists dating back to, you know, very ancient times that believed in spirits or souls or God or gods who were very careful in their science and did measurements and didn't just appeal to angels immediately mm-hmm. as soon as they did an experiment. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, that's, that's an unfair characterization. What, what do you think about, so we've talked about this uh, a couple of times, uh, Aristotle is kind of an interesting character that uh, we owe a lot to Aristotle. Um, you know, he talked about teleology, like a destiny and, and think telescope writes the end. Right. What's the purpose? What's the final, uh, goal of, of something and how, 
even though he was very helpful and we use him every day without even knowing that we're using Aristotle, um, there are some things that if you were tied to it uh, religiously, thinking about his categories and trying to put God's revelation into those categories, you could have trouble. And so there was a revolution largely at the Reformation, but even around the Reformation to throw Aristotle out. And, and I think in discussions with you, I found it very fascinating to say something similar at about the same time happened in science. So let me give you a, a religious example. Um, this is one Luther uses, and he's not really fair to Aristotle, but it's a simple one. Transubstantiation in the church, in the church at that time was a doctrine that said, uh, how, how can we explain that Christ's body and blood is present in the, in the, in the Lord's Supper? Well, the essence is body and blood, but the accidents, the things that are accidental, that are not essential to the, th- to the thing, um, were of bread and wine. So uh, the essence of Mike Berg is a embodied soul, I would say, you know, and, but if I cut off, if I lose my hand, I'm still Mike Berg, right? And how many, how many things can you cut off until I'm not there? It's mm-hmm. accidental that I have blue eyes and not brown eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and that's more complicated than what I'm saying right now, but we kind of get the gist. And so they took this doctrine that's a mystery, Christ's body and blood, and put it into categories um, of Aristotle and say, we solved the problem, but that's problematic because you're not letting God be God. Um, and you're trying to put reason over revelation and something similar happened in science at the same time where there was things, Aristotle, the way Aristotle, Aristotelian thinking maybe hampered some stuff. And so what we tend to do as human beings is throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so when the church threw out Aristotle, they didn't really throw him out. They were still using Aristotle's terms. Um, but it was easy just to say, Oh, that Aristotle, what a jerk. Mm-hmm. Right. And you lose something with that and something similar happens in science. And I know you've thought about this a lot. So maybe you want to, you want to go down that road because this is, this is, exactly a historical example of what we're talking about here. Right. I think this this was particularly interesting during the time of uh, Descartes and Galileo, who are contemporaries. Um, There's a lot of reaction to how should we deal with Aristotle? How should we be thinking about his works? Um, You know, and this is right around the time just after the Reformation, right? So um, with Galileo in particular, my students read some of his dialogues concerning Two New Sciences, kind of his last work that he wrote. It was 1638. And he talks a lot about Aristotle, and he has a lot of very positive things to say about Aristotle and a lot of very negative things to say about Aristotle. So, you know, for in, for example, he'll say in, in uh, one, of, one of the pages of his dialogues, he'll say that I, I admire Aristotle above all others because he wasn't afraid to think about and discuss a wide variety of things. Um, and but on the other hand, he'll, he satirizes uh, the ideas of Aristotle quite a bit. Um, so, and, and part of that goes back to the way that Descartes was thinking about how science should be done. So, you know, you have with Descartes, I'm not going to get this entirely right, but with Descartes, he had things that could be broken up into extended objects and mental objects, like human beings have a soul, they have a mental or spiritual capacity, and then there's extended objects, and sort of the, the only thing that has a soul would be the human being, so there's kind of Cartesian 
divide, right? So the human being has a soul. Everything below that um, doesn't have a soul, um, and it's just an extended object like matter. And so that's how he was thinking about material objects in terms of just, um, you know, atoms or, or material quantities. And that's part of the reason why this, this goes back to transubstantiation, actually. And that's why the Catholic Church had a problem with some of what Descartes was saying, is because if we think of matter as strict in terms of these, these newer categories as just extended objects, matter and void, for example, um, then you get rid of this distinction between essence and substance and accidents. You're no longer thinking in terms of substance and accidents. If, if bread is completely described by the atoms that make it up, then, um, it, and more generally material is described strictly by the, the atoms that make it up, then there's not really room to talk about transubstantiation where you have bread that is the body of Christ because atomically bread is still a bunch of atoms in a particular configuration. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it, when it, you know, when the priest rings the bell, you do look at it under a microscope, it still looks the same. And from a De from Descartes' perspective, therefore, it wouldn't really un be undergoing any change. So, um, once you get rid of those Aristotelian categories uh, and start talking in in terms of these newer modern scientific categories, it kind of throws a lot of things into turmoil. Um, and, you know, you see that with Descartes, and you see that Galileo was kind of taking that philosophy and applying it to the motion of objects and, and overturning a lot of the sort of ideas that, that Aristotle had. Yeah, so, and, and what, what is the danger of not keeping Aristotle, especially teleology, that idea, in our minds? I mean, what, 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 what in our modern world, what have we lost if we, if we don't think in those philosophical, speci specifically Aristotelian terms, without saying we're slavish to these, to these causes that he has and that kind of stuff? I think you're just, you run into problems where you're unable to understand some things. You know, when you, there's this notion that, um, you know, if you think the human being has a soul, like like Descartes did, um, you can still have teleology for the human being, like the human being acts on desires and so on. But the way science has gone is sort of, even the human being doesn't really have a soul mm -hmm. anymore. The human being is just a cluster of atoms, and that's been developed historically over time. And what we perceive as our goals or our agendas really can be explained in terms of the motion of atoms. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, it hasn't been explained in terms of that. And I think f just from an everyday perspective, we recognize that we have goals, we have purposes. When you say, I, wanted, I want to do this podcast, mm -hmm. um, that does not have an explanation in terms of atoms. The, many modern scientists will hope, well, someday we will be able mm -hmm. to explain that. You know, it's just, it's just really hard. Um, but I think just from an everyday perspective, it, it, do we take our intuitions about the way things work seriously? And Aristotle did. He said, it looks like um, we act based on goals, so we do. You know, um, And of course, you have to be careful because not all things are what they seem, but a lot of things are, <laughs> right? And so if we, if we get rid of this category of causality, um, uh, of teleological causality or end causes, then it really allow it makes it difficult to talk about certain kinds of things in an intelligible way. Yeah, so it's good that we'd say the rock falls to the earth not because the rock's end goal is to be at the center of the earth. 
right? Although you could probably twist that to say, you know, maybe you could understand that correctly. Yeah, you could. And even even some modern scientific theories have teleology built into them. That's interesting when you talk about Lagrangian or Hamiltonian dynamics. I know I'm just throwing out terms that you're probably not that familiar with, but some ways of doing mechanics um, that were developed in the 1800s basically said nature acts in such a way as to minimize or optimize certain quantities. It's almost like it's trying to achieve a certain purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, and the entire science and mechanics can be derived using that principle. You can also derive it using Newton's laws. So the Newtonian approach is kind of being pushed from behind, mm-hmm. like things when a ball, um, when a ball flies over the baseball fence, it's because it was hit by a bat. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of a push from behind, but then there's also this view of being drawn from in front, seeking a goal, and mechanics can be constructed in terms of that as well, just as well. So if I'm just a layman as a sci- looking into the science world and I say, and I, to use, keep using that, that example, okay, Aristotle says that there's this, you know, not that he said this necessarily, but... Um, you know, the, the goal of the rock is to be at the center of the earth. I go, that's silly, Aristotle's stupid. But if I think about it more clearly and what he, what, what that concept of teleology means, it has some value here. Mm-hmm. And if I throw that out, I'm, I'm walling myself off of different ways of thinking at the data. Do you think I mean, that would be I, a good I way think to... That's, I think that's fair. It's almost... I think what tends to happen in science is that there's an idea of how things work and then there's a new idea that seems to work a little bit better Mm -hmm. and so the scientists all get together and say okay now we're going to go to this new idea and we'll all call that bad idea bad Mm -hmm. and stupid (laughs) you know i know i'm exaggerating a little bit here but there's sort of this what's the scientific consensus and and if the the older theory is then gotten rid of entirely. And I think it's probably a good idea to keep those tools in your back pocket because you never know when those ideas are going to come around again and become useful. So for I'll give an example um, in developing the theory of light. So there, was, there were different ideas on what light is. Um, Newton and Huygens were advocates of two different theories of light. Newton thought, well, light is a little particle that flies through space. You know, when I turn on a flashlight, there's little particles of light that fly out of the flashlight. And he used a torch, okay, mm-hmm. not a flashlight, but it flies out, and those particles fly through space and hit your eyes, and you detect that, and that's what you perceive as light. Um, Huygens, on the other hand, this is in the, in the um, 1600s, Huygens, a Dutch scientist, mathematician, said, no, Newton, not at all. You're completely wrong. Light is a wave. Basically, there's this fluid that's between you and me. And when I light a flashlight, it causes vibrations in the fluid. And these ripples travel through this fluid like ripples on the surface of a pond. They hit your light. And that's how you perceive light. So Huygens was an advocate of the wave theory, Newton of the particle theory. And, you know, they had followers. They were going back and forth for years, in fact, centuries, until about 1809 when Thomas Young did some experiments. And that seemed to show that the wave theory was a better theory. So then, basically, we got rid of the particle theory. And so that's that's bogus. We no longer believe that. Now we know it's the wave theory. Back then, they used to think light was a wave. Now we know. I'm sorry. They used to think it was a particle. Now we know it's a wave. Um, of course, that was reversed then in the 1900s with the work of Einstein and others that the particle theory was revived into the photon theory of light. So just because a theory seems to not work, seems to be superseded at one point in time, I think it's really important to keep those other theories in your back pocket, in the toolbox, recognizing there's a lot of careful thought that went into these, and 
there was an internal consistency to these. There were good theories. They had some drawbacks, but they might become valuable once again. And I think when you get rid of some of the ideas of Aristotle, I think you run into the same kind of danger. So we just then call it a wave particle, which is a little bit of an oxymoron. Right. So we just we say uh, light is light, and it acts like a wave in some ways, and a particle yeah. like some ways. But it's just it's you know it's kind of like how Christians approach scripture. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. And, yeah. And so which which I think is a better description of what an actual scientist does is, and, and probably makes science super exciting that there's a mystery out here. You're trying to, you're trying to put your finger on the best you can. And it's an exciting to go through, through that. And, and I try to tell my students, but I think it, uh, you would, you would agree with this and maybe have a better way to say it is by the time a scientific discovery or a new theory or whatever, gets to CNN, my Facebook page or whatever, it usually says science has proven or science mm-hmm. says as if science was like this person. Like now know. we know, now, now, now the science knows that this. And that must be just uber frustrating to actual scientists. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there are some who really do kind of our blow hearts and say, this is what science says. I can't believe that anybody would disagree with this. This is what we know now. But I'm guessing that the vast majority of scientists, especially the ones who did the studies, are saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking right now. And it becomes the gospel truth when it, by the time it gets watered down to, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or whatever. I mean, do you yeah. feel that way? Yeah, I, I feel that way. And I think part of it is, you know, how, what are we going to teach the kids you know, yeah. like when it comes, like when it becomes a political issue, that's yeah. when you start running into everyone has to be in agreement on this because there, there's a lot more riding on it than just what's happening in your lab. Yeah. Then it's like, you know, we don't want to confuse the kids. We don't want to present different views that are potentially confusing. We want to have a unified front. We want to make sure they all get in the same messaging. Um, so that's when, that's when the nuances, that's when the, the, um, the carefulness, I guess, right. uh, it gets put away. And yeah. Yeah, so. and not to let, you know, scientists off the hook, they're sinful people too. And, and the way you were describing how, okay, we have a new theory that everybody's gotta, got to say the old theory is bad and now we have something new. I mean, that's kind of how academia works in every discipline. Like if I'm going to get funding, if I'm going to be able to publish a book, I kind of need to debunk the guy before me, mm-hmm. right? So I, this is just super famous in like archaeology and stuff like that. Now we have, now we know different. Buy my book and give me a grant, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is a pressure, a lot of pressure there to not fudge data. I think it, you know certainly in a sinful world that happens, um, but to really believe in your data because you have something at stake here, right? And so I, I wonder if sometimes, I know in other disciplines that's true, and the same thing happens where we say, oh, we have now, just take like the study of house churches in the early whatever, something that really is not zero help, it's it's zero help in the coronavirus pandemic, <laughs> but it's interesting <laughs> to people like me. Well, we found this one thing, so now this must be, the way we all think. Mm-hmm. And then some of that data may be revived, those old theories. Um, and But there was that point of view where we're like, oh, well, Jesus was married because we found this one thing that said mm-hmm. Jesus was married. We're not quite sure if Je- that actually was Jesus or if that actually means he was married. You know, you know what I mean? Right. And it becomes sensational. And I think to the, to the 
scientific world, I'd like to say, you know, there are some of us who, who appreciate you from a religious point of view and don't hate you. (laughs) (laughs) And from a Christian, like I say to Christians is scientists are not your enemies. Mm -hmm. And, and, and nor do the vast majority of scientists think they are enemies of religion. There, there, there's certainly some that would push, you know, are very weary of bringing in religious notions into science. And a lot of that probably rightfully so, you know, I, I had this thing sticking in my mind, this, uh, uh, interview with a oil, uh, worker or a rig worker out in the, in the ocean. What are those called? I don't know. The oil, oil platform well, platform or whatever yeah. during the BP spill or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about environmentalism and all that kind of stuff. And he kind of let slip what his real thought was that we won't run out of oil because God will provide kind of saying like, God's going to put his gas, <laughs> back into the into the world, you know, and you kind of go not helpful, right? right? That's, why so, that's why I don't keep food in the refrigerator. And yeah, don't buy insurance, or, right? <laughs> God will God will just provide, right? I don't need so, um, and it's more than don't test God. It's like also listen to the people God gave brains to, mm-hmm. right? And it and we we have this tension, and I don't think for the vast majority that tension needs to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, this is, I know you've talked in some of your other work a lot about vocation, and, you know, that's, that fits in really well here, that, you know, that God provides for us through people doing their vocations, their tasks, right? And yeah. so we should take those seriously. Yeah. So uh, another thing that we should probably talk about is it's not just that people, sometimes people in the scientific world are leery of religion, but also leery of philosophy a little bit of getting too much into what we may call like a hard science kind of world. And so some of the definitions for my students that they have in front of me kind of help us sort of navigate this. Uh, Maybe I'll jump down to scientism a little bit and I actually will read Mm -hmm. this one. Scientism. So we're not talking about science, which is basically just knowledge. We're talking scientism, the view that only the hard sciences, so think chemistry, physics, biology, uh, the math, uh, mathematical disciplines, the view that only the hard scientists can provide a genuine view of reality, or at the very least, by far the best view of reality. And that a strong scientist implies that something is true or justified rationally only if it has been successfully tested according to an accepted scientific method. Weak scientism, uh, agrees that there could be truth outside of the hard sciences, but the hard sciences remain at the most valid avenue, remain as the most valid avenue to truth. Mm-hmm. Fair enough from your point of view. I took that from somebody else. So it's yeah, not I my, think that's yeah. a good definition of scientism. Right? So a scientism, and, and we say this not from a religious point of view as like, oh, this is so bad. This is going to ruin religion. This is bad science, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, to, to eliminate all other causes is not to look at the data and say, okay, maybe, but it is to take away certain conclusions a priori before the data. Is that fair enough to say that? Yeah. So, um, only the hard, so the hard sciences can provide a gen, the view that only the hard sciences can provide a genuine view of reality. Well, I mean, if, if by sciences you mean looking at nature, see, I think sometimes we 
you know, I do take looking at nature and looking around me very seriously. And I think most people, I think everybody does, you know, you, you make everyday judgments based on what you see around you. Um, and we should, and we sh we base most of our viewpoints on the things we see around us on a day-to-day -day basis. But sometimes that can be co-opted and say, well, science, the things that the hard sciences tell us. So do they have some, you know, in my laboratory, do I have a better view of reality mm -hmm. than, you know, us sitting here at this table and looking at table and saying, there's a table in front of me. There's, you know, so it I guess it depends on where this goes, mm -hmm. right? So should I, should I take what the physicist is telling me in his laboratory more seriously than I take what I see in front of my eyes? Mm -hmm. And maybe scientism is the view that I should take what the physicist in his laboratory tells me more seriously than what's right in front of my eyes. Um, if that's what we mean by scientism, well, I guess I would, I would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's, yeah, I don't, I think what the, uh, the original author is talking about here is totally eliminating the spiritual, the supernatural, any kind of cause that we cannot actually prove by, um, by either a, um, uh, an experiment, which would also include being able to try to falsify it. So obviously, so sometimes you'll hear, I can't prove that there's a God, nor can I run an experiment that would falsify mm -hmm. the claim. And so therefore I can't work with that, which right. would be right. more, but scientism, yeah. I think in this author's view goes to the point that says, if we can't run an experiment or try to falsify it, then it is not true. Yeah. Right. And that would be, I think, yeah. The, where the problem lies. Right. I would say, that, yeah, that's, that's a problem. I mean, and this is, I, I always, I like to go back to things that I have my students looking at in class also. I think I might've mentioned Pascal last time I was on this podcast, but Pascal when in his introduction to his treatise on fluids. He talks about the difference between um, appealing to the testimony of authorities and appealing to the testimony of reason. And, so, and he was he was claiming at the time that people were putting too much faith in the testimony of authorities. You know, this Aristotle said this, mm -hmm. or, you know, this ancient authority said that. And it was crimping science. Basically, people couldn't do things in their laboratory and discover something new because someone would just pull out Aristotle and said, oh, yeah, but Aristotle said this. And so we can't believe what you're doing in your laboratory. He was pushing back against that and saying, well, you know, we need to be able to use our reason in the laboratory to, to measure things and call into question the testimony of the authorities. Um, but he didn't want to get rid of the testimony of authorities. And specifically, he said, there are things you can't test in your laboratory. Like if you want to find out who, you know, the first king of France was, mm -hmm. you cannot go into your laboratory and do an experiment to measure that and figure it out. You have to rely on the testimony of people who were there, who saw it, who said, I watched him get crowned king of France. Okay, mm -hmm. so you must rely on the testimony of authorities uh, in order to, you know, study history, to study what ancient languages were, to study where the first meridian was put. Uh, you can't test those things in your laboratory. So if, if you're using, you know, this is the problem with, that you run into a scientism is that if I can't measure it in my laboratory, then I'm not going to believe it. It's not true. I mean, you're basically going to have to throw out history. Yeah. So it's not just you throw out religion and then maybe a little bit philosophy, but you're throwing out probably most of psychology. Yeah. 
certainly all of the liberal arts. Yeah, I mean, right. you're, you're getting, you're getting, you're not just getting, in, in an attempt to get rid of religion, you're getting rid of a lot of other stuff right. too. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, and so that's kind of, and this is probably not fair, but hard sciences versus soft sciences, like soft sciences, kind of opinion, we can, we don't really know for sure that you know uh, that Caesar Augustus was the this emperor at this time because mm-hmm. we don't, I mean, we, I can't, I don't have a video of it or whatever. Yeah. It's it's fake news. Yeah. Right? right. And so, you know, by the way, this, this idea of kind of a postmodern, we can't get to truth sort of kind of thing. Um, religious people say, no, I can rely on truth. I mean, this is, this seems to be a, of a big assault on the idea that Jesus is the logos that, that there is a, a revelation from God. But the people I think also freaking out about this are scientists, mm-hmm. you know, who are maybe waking it up to this idea that when you start, when you start attacking, like, can we know anything historically or whatever, eventually you start getting people saying, well, that's just fake news. Mm-hmm. Is there really a pandemic right here right mm-hmm. now? Because I, I think it's easy to say, okay, this is something in a laboratory or it's mathematically a proof and then everything else is sort of opinion. Well, like you said, you start, you start chipping away at that. Eventually you start chipping away at maybe even what a scientist says. Mm-hmm. Well, even the statement of science, like the claim that the only things we can trust, I'm reading the definition of scientism you have, the only things we can trust are things that we can prove in the laboratory. Well, that statement's not proven in the laboratory, right? right? right. So, I mean, that that's an easy, that's a softball, right. but that's... Right that's the case. I mean, even the claims, if you take scientism seriously, then you shouldn't take it seriously. Right. 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 So this is where we get to like, uh, you know, at the top of the page there for the students, those analytical statements and synthetic statements, we won't go through them. Just, uh, just kind of basically say this, that there was a philosophical movement that said, you know, unless something's a mathematical proof or it is true by definition, you know, the classic example, all, all bachelors are unmarried males. Um, or something that can match up with uh, the data that we have. Like this is, you know, something that is verifiable is probably the best word. Then we should not speak of it, mm-hmm. right? Which is probably generally decent advice, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. in the world. Like shut up if you don't know. But it, you're eliminating against, uh, again, all the, the, the liberal arts and you start questioning everything and that that amount of knowledge that we know for sure becomes less and less and less and less. And I think you finally doubt everything to take the next step is to say, as you said, unless it's verifiable, it is not true. Not just that it may be true. We just don't know that it's not true. That statement is a philosophical statement that is not a mathematical proof and cannot be verified Mm -hmm. or falsified. And so you can't get rid of philosophy. You just simply can't. And so that's where that lower down on the page, I had this concept of first philosophy, that there are certain mm-hmm. things that we need to work out philosophically before we do anything at all. And, and here's where both science and, and theology kind of, uh, uh, you know, lift a incredulous eyebrow here, but they shouldn't. So, I mean, I, I think maybe a biologist says, I don't need any philosopher coming in here and telling me about their nonsense. Um, but there are certain rules in biology. There's certain things of what's, how do we know things, epistemology, mm-hmm. all these things that you're going to use. And even for 
for a Lutheran pastor who has been trained to say philosophy is the worst thing that ever happened to humanity. <laughs> I, I say to this, you know, we have... <laughs> Did they teach you that? <laughs> <laughs> not in so many words, you know, but there's... Pretty some, close. Sometimes there's the impression of that that, that is left. Yeah. Um, you know, like C.S. Lewis said, you know, we need good philosophers for no other reason than there's bad, bad philosophers out there, right? <laughs> so, but uh, I say to, to my, my brethren that you know, we have rules about hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible. Like we, we have come up with this idea that says when, when you look at poetry, that's different in the, in, in, when you're looking at Psalm, some one of the Psalms, than you do with the history, like uh, first Kings. These are hermeneutical rules that we have come up with. There is no prolegomena, like a previous, uh, uh, book or chapter or prologue before Genesis that says, hmm. just so you know, some of this is going to be poetry, some of this is going to be history, some of this is going to be apocalyptic liturgy. Don't mix the way you, you uh, do your her- hermeneutics there. No, we were given rationality. We have, a philo- we have a first philosophy. So the idea of a first philosophy as in that you have to do philosophy first in everything. Right. Um, and without realizing that, without, I don't know, offering philosophy in a liberal arts college mm-hmm. or whatever without thinking clearly you can get yourself into quite a bit of trouble in every discipline whether it be english religion or biology i that's very well said and i think the the, the thing that people are uncomfortable about is they'll say wait a minute but people do have different philosophies about how you should approach the bible and people have different philosophies about this and that and i would say that's true but there, I think sometimes the disagreements are amplified. Mm-hmm. The fact is, um, there is a lot of agreement on how we should approach things. You can emphasize how we disagree about things, but I think whenever you're having a debate or a discussion, the most productive thing you can do is try to find out what you can agree on first. There are going to be some philosophical principles, starting points, like we can have a dialogue, right? And if they say, Yes, then you're agreeing on that. There's a philosophical interest in dialogue. Can we agree that we're going to mean what we say? You know, so that you have to work up from what are the what are the starting points you can agree on. That's really then the first philosophy that that mm-hmm. you can start with when you're having a disagreement, and then you can start building up and finding out where where you're in disagreements and why, and try to work through those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you just can't escape it, and you um, are doing everybody a disservice, including yourself, if you don't kind of embrace it, I think, mm-hmm. a little bit. And everybody should take a philosophy class is, is, is what exactly. we're finally, finally what we're saying here. Um, as we, I've said to you before, I mean, you know, if we don't think clearly, you know, we could have an election for the most powerful person in the world and the only choices would be a reality TV sh- star and a socialist. Imagine that. And that would be crazy. <laughs> that would take decades of not thinking clearly, right? <laughs> um, but what, I mean, these are big questions that always have been. What is truth? How do we get to truth? How do we, how do we, you know, uh, how do we govern ourselves? All these kinds of things. And you can't just put that into a laboratory, into a mathematical equation, right? And the the best of scientists and the best of especially mathematicians and, and physicists were asking these big questions and saw patterns, saw teleology, mm-hmm. saw all of these things. They didn't, knowledge is knowledge. It's, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that we have siloed ourselves into some of these different uh, um, uh, places. I, I mean, it, the worst thing in the world, two worst things in the world is a, a philosopher or, or uh, maybe a hard science person who has no concept of ethics or the soul or any of these questions, 
The second, you know, equally bad is the the preacher who gets up who probably should have maybe paid attention in science class. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like you're both wrong a lot of the times. (laughs) So anyway, I really appreciate you coming on. This is very helpful. And I think uh, uh, you said things better than I ever could. Um, And so this is, I think, probably more entertainment and you entertaining and useful for my students and our broader uh, listening uh, audience uh, than just me droning on. So I thank you for coming. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. And yeah, uh, yeah, this is, this is really nice. I really appreciate this kind of thing. This is the kind of thing I really enjoy thinking about as well. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to come and chat with you. So thank you. Thank you for listening uh, as well. Until next time, let the bird fly.